1914, a man called Ernest Shackleton set sail on what became known as the Endurance Expedition. Their goal was to be the first expedition to cross the Antarctic. It was an attempt, if you know this story, which ultimately failed as their boat, the Endurance, became trapped and eventually crushed by the ice. And what began as a glorious expedition to make history became one of the most remarkable survival stories of all time. With the Endurance trapped in the ice, the group were forced to abandon ship and started to live on the ice, first attempting to trek on foot, hauling their lifeboats with them. They had three lifeboats. And eventually giving up after a few days and simply camping, waiting for the ice to break up. They camped for five months on the ice. So if any of you thought it was cold this morning in South London, you, there's a, probably a reality check for some of us. Five months of waiting and camping on the ice in freezing conditions, waiting for the ice to break up. Eventually, it broke up literally underneath their camp. And quickly, they got ready the three lifeboats and set sail, trying to reach the nearest land. On board these boats, which were a little bigger than rowing boats, temperatures dropped to as low as minus 30 degrees Celsius. Conditions were appalling. But somehow, after a week at sea, all three boats managed to reach Elephant Island. Having reached Elephant Island, many of the men were now too ill, too frail to go any further, so Shackleton made a decision to divide the group up. He left the majority of the party to survive where they were, and then he chose five men to sail with him in an attempt to reach the island of South Georgia to get help to rescue all of them. This was a near-impossible plan. Six men in a six-meter lifeboat sailing across 800 miles of the most dangerous waters in the planet. 800 miles to South Georgia in a big rowing boat. For two weeks, they endured freezing conditions, hurricane winds, enormous waves, and yet somehow on the 10th of May, 1916, they managed to land on South Georgia. The problem was that this wasn't the end of it either because South Georgia has a whaling station, but the whaling station was on the other side of the island and they couldn't sail around to get to it. The only way from where they were to the whaling station to get help was to go across land. And across land meant traversing mountains, which even today, modern mountaineers consider incredibly difficult peaks to climb. It was a 26-mile traverse, which had never been done before, across mountains thousands of feet tall, without any maps, virtually no equipment, and no experience of climbing mountains. These were explorers and seafarers. Shackleton, with two others, went. Three stayed. 36 hours later, Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean staggered into the South Georgia whaling station. There, they managed to convince people to give them a boat. They sailed, got round to the other side, picked up the rest of the three, and then they gave their attention to how to get boats to get back to Elephant Island. Over months, they managed to secure different boats to try and reach Elephant Island. He tried three times over those next few months to reach Elephant Island to rescue their party. Every time they got there, the island was cut off by the ice. On the 30th of August, 1916, however, Shackleton returned again. This time, however, miraculously, 
the ice flow opened and they were able to reach and approach the island. Four months after leaving, they spot the camp through the fog and within an hour of reaching the island, every man they had left on the beach were aboard the boat. Literally every aspect of the endurance story and survival and rescue story is remarkable. Every aspect. But the pinnacle, if you like, the crescendo, the moment, if you like, that everybody talks about that brought all the strands of the story back together is the moment when Shackleton returns to the island and rescues and liberates the man. That's the crescendo moment. And in fact, without that moment, no one would tell the story. The story would just be forgotten as one failed expedition. But because he manages to get back and rescue his men, that's the reason the story gets retold. It's the pinnacle crescendo moment of all the rest of the strands of the story. Now that is a picture, if you like, of what the Bible says about our story. That if you like, there are so many strands in creation and history. But there is a moment, the Bible says, when one day all the strands of the story will come together. There's a pinnacle crescendo moment coming one day, the Bible says. And I want to read to you one passage which talks about that moment which describes the day when all the strands of history will come together. So I'm going to read to you from Revelation 21. And this is a passage we don't often necessarily read, certainly not all that I'm going to read. We're going to read the first, first eight verses. This is a prophetic picture It's got difficult language, but it describes a vision that John had of the future one day. And this is what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for this is trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water, without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars... They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, you need to know, when I was preparing for this message, I was sorely tempted just to read you the first seven verses. Okay? In fact, that was what I was planning to do. I thought, I'm not going to read verse 8. Verse 8 is not popular, so I'm going to read verse 7. Verse 8 is not a phrase that you read, hear people pray out during worship. The worship leader doesn't start with it, I hope. Okay? No one writes it in a card. Happy Christmas. We love you. Remember Revelation 21, verse 8, the fiery. No one writes that. If you do, that's weird. Okay? It's not popular, but I felt, even as I prepared, I, just, I literally felt a little check in my spirit, like, Phil, you need to read the whole thing. Because we need to know what the Bible says is where this thing is heading towards. We need to know how the story comes together, how it gets resolved. 
And that is this, because it says, one day, all the strands of the story will come together one day when Jesus returns. And when he does, the Bible says, everybody's going to know. You see, we're going to celebrate in a few weeks, aren't we? Christmas, Jesus coming. But when Jesus came as a baby, not everybody knew. People are thinking, is that the guy? I don't know. And there are all sorts of questions throughout his life as to who he was. That day, everyone's going to know. Everybody will know that he's come back. Revelation 21 says, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I'm the Omega. In other words, I'm going to bring everything to conclusion. I'm the Omega for everyone. One way or the other, everybody is going to meet him. That's what the Bible says. Now, I think we don't always know what to do with this aspect of our faith. The kind of whole idea about life and death and dying and what happens in heaven. We, we don't really know what to do with this sometimes. Partly it makes us a bit uncomfortable because it reminds us that we're going to die. Yeah? Now, some of us are, represent cultures here where you're, you're far better at this. But certainly my culture, where I've grown up, we just ignore death. You know, even death is like 100% the rate, okay? Everybody's going to die. Even though we know it's absolutely certain, we pretend it's never going to happen. So it comes as a huge shock to us when it does. That's my background. So we don't talk about it, because if we talk about it, it maybe makes it more possible it's going to happen to us. So we pretend. We stick our head in the sand, and we hope it's going to go away for, for a long, long time. Yet it's running at about 100%, the mortality rate, everybody. But it makes us uncomfortable. Some of us, we don't know what to do with this aspect of our faith because we're just a bit confused. It's unclear for us. We don't really know what to think, what the Bible says about life and death and what happens to us. We're we're unclear. So our thinking about it is fuzzy. And because it's kind of fuzzy, that's a theological phrase, because our thinking is fuzzy, our convictions are kind of fuzzy as well. So it makes us nervous because we're just not certain on anything. We more have this kind of picture in our mind. We think of death. We have more this, Mar- this Bart Simpson picture if we put it up. We're a bit more like this. Okay? There we go. We kind of, you know, cartoons, Tom and Jerry. I remember Tom and Jerry. Basically, Tom or Jerry would die. Most cartoons and their body would. And we think of death as being this thing where we die and then something we kind of float. And we keep floating. And eventually we float when we meet God because he's floating and eternity is basically us floating with God, and it's all a bit vague and abstract. Do you know what I mean? Yeah? And we, and, and that, and we wonder, and, and it, sounds, it makes heaven sound very boring, and we wonder why the New Testament makes such a big fuss about the age to come, when it just sounds like a lot of floating, which doesn't sound so... And we have this kind of abstract, vague idea about what the future is going to be, and therefore we lack confidence about the future. Because we're more informed by cartoons than we are actually what the Bible says to us, what's going to happen. And I don't think God wants us vague. In fact, I really feel God wants us clear. And I think God wants us confident. In fact, you read through the New Testament, the tone of the New Testament about the issues of life and death and future and eternity are absolutely confident and hopeful. That's the tone. Let me read you one passage. We could pick loads, but Philippians 1, Paul says this. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Listen, apart from one or two people I know who've got very elderly, who get to a point where they just want to go, I've hardly ever heard anybody say that. For to me, to die is to gain. We live in a world that says, no, no, to, 
No, no, to die is to lose. And yet Paul goes, no, no, to die is to gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. In other words, I will do good work. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. How can Paul say, I'd rather die because it's better? How can he even say that? I mean, that is so completely like cross-cultural for us. We're like, what is he talking about? I'm like, I want to live, I want to live, I want to live, and that's good. But he's going, no, no, I'd rather die one day because why? Why? The only reason surely is because he knows, he is certain that actually whatever is coming is way better than whatever he's experienced up to now. That's surely the only reason why he can say with such conviction, it would be better to go. The something greater is coming, that all the threads of the story are going to come together. And because, like it says in Revelation 21, God is going to make everything new. The crescendo of my story and your story is not actually the moment you die. Okay? Now, I do believe that when you die, if you're a believer, you go to be with Jesus. Okay? You read Luke 23, Jesus on the cross with the thief next to him. Jesus turns to him and says, this day you're going to walk with me in paradise. Okay? Something happens instantly. But that is not the crescendo of the story. The crescendo of the story is the moment that all creation is longing for. That's what it says in Romans. That one day Jesus will return and that when he does, he doesn't come to free us from the earth so we live in the clouds in some kind of disembodied life which is kind of like the kind of vague thoughts we have. He comes in that moment to remake everything, all of creation. And in that moment, the Bible says that the kingdom of God, his presence will so fully invade this earth and so fully unveiled respond to who he is that he will make everything new, that he will unleash power, he will raise people from the dead, and heaven literally will come down. You see, often our thinking is, we're going to leave the earth and go and be in heaven. Actually, Revelation 21 says, heaven's coming down to earth. And heaven, Jesus comes, I'm going to remake everything new. Everything that's been spoiled and broken by sin is going to be fixed and made new. I'm going to remake a new heaven, new earth, and new bodies. That's what it's saying. All of creation will be rewoven, in other words. That's why in Romans it says, all the creation is longing. What's it longing for? Well, it's not longing for a day when it's rolled up and thrown away. That's crazy. It's longing for a day when things that don't work, work again. Things get healed and made new. And his presence so fully invades this world that everything is affected and changed and healed. And the Bible says we will experience that on a new earth with new physical resurrection bodies. And if you want to get a picture of what that will be like, read about Jesus after he's resurrected and what he was like. There's continuity. He looks like him. He eats fish. But there's discontinuity. He he seems to be able to move in ways that we can't move right now. It is what Tom Wright, the scholar, says, that there will be life after life after death. It says, let me quote you a little bit of one of his books. He says this. He is at the moment, this moment, so right now, present with us. We believe that. We experience something of his presence, but hidden behind that invisible veil that keeps heaven and earth apart. 
and which we pierce in those moments such as prayer, the sacraments, the reading of Scripture, and our work with the poor, when the veil seems particularly thin. In other words, there are moments, aren't there, where we feel like God is closer. It's not that he's closer than he was. It's just that he reveals more of his presence in those moments. Sometimes you experience it in worship. But one day, the veil will be lifted. Earth and heaven will be one. Jesus will be personally present. And every knee shall bow at his name. Creation will be renewed. The dead will be raised. And God's new world will be at last in place, full of new prospects and new possibilities. That's what's coming. C.S. Lewis In the Narnia stories, if you've ever read those, you'll know the line, the witch, and the wardrobe, but there's a whole series of books. In the last battle, he describes that moment, and he talks about it like this. He says, Now at last, they were beginning chapter one, one of the great story which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. It's such a great picture about what's coming. You see, if you believe that, you understand more of what Paul is saying in Philippians 1. Now, if that is true, if Revelation 21 is true, if life is temporary and short, but eternity is coming, all of creation gets remade, dead or raised, And there's this new life possibility with him forever. If that is true, then that should radically affect how we live now. In a number of ways. Let me say a few things. First of all, this it should provoke us to choose once and for all where our allegiance lies. How am I going to live? See, I think it's really easy sometimes as Christians to kind of go, do you know what? I'm going to live with a foot in both camps. I'm going to, I'm going to live a life which is kind of like sort of God-oriented, sort of. But this side of the life, my life, I'm just going to, I'm going to I'll rule this thing myself. So I was talking to someone the other day, lovely, lovely guy, lovely man, okay? And this is not a comment on you if you're in this situation. But he was talking about baptism, and, and I was saying, look, we're not going to baptize you yet because there's this whole area of your life which you haven't submitted to Jesus. It's like you're saying, I'm happy to follow Jesus in this part of my life, but not this part. This part I'll decide for myself. What is that? That's not lordship. I mean, I understand. I was there. I was there, but if I was going to speak to myself, I'd say, that's not lordship. That's not following Jesus. That's like going, I'm going to try to hedge my bets. By the way, hedging your bets and living a divided life is pretty miserable. No, I haven't met anybody joyful who's divided, ever. Because you're not fully following Jesus and enjoying him, and similarly, you're over here kind of dabbling in stuff you shouldn't be doing, but you know in your heart you shouldn't be. There's no joy there. That should be a signal to you. And I was there, and this kind of thing, if you think, this is tr- if this is true, then it should provoke me to make a choice. Jesus is pretty clear, wasn't he? Guy comes along, knows all the commandments, has been a fantastically righteous man. He says, what do I have to do? Jesus says, you've got to sell everything, follow me. Why did he say sell everything? Because he's saying you need to be all in 
Don't hedge your bets. Don't mess about. I got a message today, a phone message. I was at Downham. I got a message from one of my eldest brothers saying, you need to call me. I called him. I'm like thinking, oh, what is this? You know the phone calls where everything shifts? So I get a message. It's about my middle brother. Him and his wife and his two kids are in a car accident yesterday. Two, kid, the two kids are fine, but both my brother and his wife are in hospital. Now, they're okay. Like, they're okay. So, but I'm, I'm on the phone. They're both in hospital for the next few days. There's injuries. And I'm thinking, it is that close. We don't live that far away from eternity, folks. We don't. We think we do, but we don't. We should choose. Jesus says, it says that he's going to return. He says he will make all things new. And he's going to judge He's going to judge who can live in his new world. Now, culturally, that's not very popular, right? We don't like the idea that God is allowed to judge. But it says judge will, he will bring judgment with water and life for some and fire and death for others. That's what it says. Now, we get strong reactions to that in the world, okay? People are like, well, what gives God the right to judge me? And if surely, if God is a God of love, then how can he judge people? And that's the kind of reaction we get. But actually, I want to say to you, a God who loves and who judges is not irreconcilable. irreconcilable. In fact, they're integral to one another. If God comes to make all things new and to wipe away every tear, then surely he comes to right every wrong. Surely. When we stop and think about it from our own lives, we can kind of see it if we're honest. Because some of us know what it's like to be full of anger and full of love at the same time. I'm a parent. If someone hurts my child, how do you think I feel? I feel angry because they hurt someone I love. If I didn't love them, I would be indifferent to the fact they'd been hurt. So my anger flows out of my love. If I didn't care, there would be no anger. A lady called Becky Pippert wrote a book called Hope Has Its Reasons, and she writes on this subject. This is one of the things she says. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards a stranger? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but is settled opposite to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. You see, the Bible teaches that God's, God's judgment, his anger with sin flows out of his love for people. It is far more unpalatable, surely, to think of a God who does not bring judgment where there has been evil, where there's been injustice. If God doesn't judge, then he's indifferent to evil and injustice. Therefore, he lacks love, and therefore, he's not worthy of worship. Now, probably we can see that on a global scale. If we think of people who, you know, Adolf Hitler or Pol Pot or other people who have been responsible for huge genocides and and injustice and evil, we can see that because we can't imagine a scenario where we think it's okay for somebody like that not to be brought to account. Surely we see justice on such a scale, we kind of go, there's evil, God must judge that, surely. So we're happy globally to think that way, but we have a real struggle to think personally that God might hold me accountable for my sin. And that is because often when we think of sin, we think of sin in a kind of quantity way rather than a quality way. We excuse ourselves by saying, actually, what I've done is not as bad as that person. It's not as many, and my sins are somehow lower. So therefore, actually, I'm not so bad. So God can't judge me. The issue is sin is not just a quantity issue. It is a quality issue. 
All of us have fallen short. All of us self-centered, greedy, broken. And I think Revelation 21 says to us, we need to choose. We need to choose. That's certainly where I got to in my life. This as well. This kind of teaching, this thinking about what's going to come should also liberate us. If it's true, it should liberate us to live a different kind of life. Now, if this life is all it is, right? Let's say we believe basically that when we die, that's it, we're gone. And that's life over, everything gone. Then what's that going to do? It's going to make you live a life where you try and get everything you can out of this life. Because this is it. You're going to try and extract as much as you can from this existence now. You're going to try and get as much money, as much experience, whatever you got. It's kind of hedonistic experience. I'm going to get everything I can out of this because this is it, right? But if this is not it, if actually this is passing, if this is temporary, if this is like a shadow of what's to come, then surely then we live in light of that, not this. Let me try and illustrate this to you. How many of you have ever stayed in a hotel or something like that? It's not a test. You're allowed to admit it, okay? Right, okay. Imagine this. How many of us who stayed in a hotel have decided, you know, you're there for a few days or a week or so, and in the hotel you decide that there's something about the hotel you're not so keen on. You don't like the bathroom suite, or the carpet's not the color you want, or maybe the walls aren't decorated the way you'd like them to be, or the, or the tiles are wrong above the toilet. And you look at it all and you kind of go, do you know what, I'm here for a week, but I'm going to invest a good four or five days of my labor and my money in changing the carpet and the tiles and the toilet so that the room looks better. How many of us have ever redecorated a hotel room? <laughs> no, party because you'd be arrested, Okay. But why not? Why don't we do that? Why? Because we're checking out. We, know, we don't do that. We never, we're not bothered with the carpet. Why? Because at the end of the week, we're checking out anyway. We don't live here. This isn't where we're going to stay. So we don't invest energy into the carpets because we're going to be checking out at the end of the week. If you really believe that there's a day coming that is described in Revelation 21, then it means you look at your own life and you go, do you know what? We're going to be checking out. Now, that's not a comment on DIY. I'm not saying you can't do up your houses. I'm saying you don't invest everything into this life as if this is it. Because Revelation 21 says, this is not it. That's it. It means you're free to live lives where you don't have the most incredible career ever. You're free to make choices to have less money and spend more time with your family. You're free to do acts of kindness that no one ever knows about. You're free to be more generous with your money because it's not all riding on that. You can give your money away. It's going to be okay because this isn't it. If you think this is it, you're going to invest everything in the now and then you're going to have a big shock when you get there. It should live us, liberate us to live bold, adventurous, generous lives. Lastly, this. If Revelation 21 is true, if that's real, and that's coming, it should produce in us a resilient, prevailing hope. You see, Revelation was a prophetic vision that John had, but it came at about a time where Christians were being horribly oppressed by the Romans. Okay, awful, awful suffering. How do you endure awful suffering? You only endure it if you have a hope that this is not going to be it forever. See, hope speaks to us, doesn't it? Hope says to us, actually, this is only temporary. There's a season where everything will change and be better. 
Hope reminds us that whatever we're experiencing now is just a shadow of what is to come, that everything will be made new. Hope helps you hold on, in other words, when you go through difficult times. If you have a hope, you think, you know what, I'm going to endure because something better is coming. And hope, the New Testament talks about, there's a hope that we can have that actually we will be able to participate in that age to come. And the Bible says if you put your trust in Jesus, you will participate with him in the age to come. Romans 5 says you can have a hope that does not disappoint. What does that mean? It means there's a certain hope. You see, we often think of hope as something that's tenuous, possible. We are hopeful. I'm hopeful that I'm going to pass that exam. I'm hopeful that I'm going to get that job. I'm hopeful that my team will win, whatever it is. But we have no guarantee It's not certain, it's not down, it's not nailed down, but I'm hopeful. But there's no guarantee. That's not what the New Testament's talking about. He's saying, no, there's something certain you can hold on to, that actually, when he says you're, you're in, you're in. There's something hopeful that we can hold on to that is certain. It's a hope that we haven't yet realized and experienced, but that doesn't mean because you haven't realized that it's not for real. It's definite. And the reason it's definite, if you're a Christian, is because your life, your death, your ultimate resurrection is absolutely intrinsically connected to his life, his death, and his resurrection. What happens to Jesus happens to you, in other words. His resurrection is a guarantee, the Bible says, of your resurrection because you're now in him. Let me take you, there's so many passages we can look at, but let me take you to one. This is 1 Corinthians 15. You should read the whole chapter, by the way. Um, not now, because I'm reading just a bit of it, but at some point, read it all, okay? Verse 20 says this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits, that's the word, of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes... Those who belong to him. Now, first fruits is like an agricultural phrase. It's, re- it's basically a reference to like the first part of a harvest. It is, by the way, unthinkable that a farmer would bring in the first part of the harvest and not the rest of it. So he's saying that Jesus' resurrection, as remarkable as it is, and, how, and everything hinges on his resurrection, by the way, even though that is true, is the first fruits of something else. In other words, his resurrection is like the first installment The first part of something else. The first part of what? The first part of what we read about in Revelation 21. Jesus' resurrection is the first installment of something else to come on an even greater scale. The power we see unleashed in Jesus' body that was dead, decaying, in a tomb, left for days, The power unleashed to raise him from the dead. The Bible says, now, one day, Revelation 21 is going to be unleashed on all of creation, including you and me. That's what it's saying. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. It means this. Whatever you're walking through, as hard and as challenging as it is, because we're not into unreality, life can be really hard. But whatever you walk through, there can be a solid 
certain living hope that one day everything will be better. And the thing my soul longs for most will be mine. When Ernest Shackleton finally managed to get to Elephant Island on the fourth attempt, he only just made it out with his men. They got in, got the men off the island, got on board, and they set sail away from the island. As they set sail, the ice closed in again, and they just got out in time. Otherwise, they'd have all been caught there again. The story goes that he turns and looks to his men and says, he says, it was fortunate that you were packed and ready to go. Famously, they replied this, we never gave up hope. Whenever the sea was clear of ice, we rolled up our sleeping bags, reminded each other, he may come today. He may come today. I'm going to close. I want to read to you, I'll read over you really, a prayer from Ephesians 1. And this is a prayer really just says, God, we want to know you more and we want to know the hope to which you say we're called to. We want to know it truly, deeply resonating in our hearts. So I'd love you to stand. I want the team to come back, please. I'm just going to read this over to you and then David's going to lead us in the song. And if you think, God, I want to know you in a way that I haven't known you before and I want to know that this hope is real, then you might want to just close your eyes as I read it over you. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Amen.